open your scriptures to Genesis chapter 3. As we begin a new series entitled From Creation to New Creation. And this morning the focus is this. The first Adam needs the last Adam. Okay, the first man, Adam, needs the last Adam, Jesus Christ. God is establishing a new kingdom. That's what a king rules over. Jesus is presented as a king, but a kingdom that doesn't just replace the Garden of Eden, it surpasses it. We are moving from a garden paradise, Genesis 1 and 2, to a garden city paradise, to Revelation 21 and 22. We are moving from the brokenness of this world, the sin of Genesis 3, to the celestial beauty and sinlessness of Genesis or of Revelation 21 and 22. Here are a few of the purposes of this series. First of all, to help make the grand narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation clear to each of us. Here's why. Many things in the Bible seem haphazard and obscure. They seem strange or foreign, and worse, they seem to present the character of God that is cruel, even abusive. But as you, as you back away to see the whole panorama in one view, you're going to understand that the lies of Satan in the garden to not be able to trust God's character and his ways and his doings can be undone by a trust in the God that is over everything. Secondly, to help us explain to others what we believe and why we believe it. The Bible makes sense of life, it makes sense of death, it makes sense of the universe, it makes sense of the future. Matter of fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. For a reason for what? What are they asking? It's interesting that he doesn't move to bookish knowledge or to an intellectual pursuit. Who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Can you respond to someone who asks you about that? Do they even see hope in you? In the midst of failure, in the midst of the disappointments of life, do they see the hope of Jesus Christ? Is anyone asking? Third, to help us grow in our own personal walk with God. Ours is meant to be more than, a per, more than just an informal walk, an informational walk, or a theoretical walk, or an intellectual walk. It includes some of those things, but ours is meant to be an experiential walk. Matter of fact, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, leaders who knew the Bible perhaps better than you and I know that section of our scriptures. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Possible to have a Bible, own a Bible, memorize the Bible. Understand the structure of the Bible, all the authors, all the purposes, all the outlines, and yet not know Jesus Christ. It's 
possible to go to a Bible believing church and carry your Bible faithfully and know it better than the person sitting next to you and still not have a personal saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are not told to excel at religion. We are told to know the scriptures in the sense that they introduce us to a person who is our savior. As the word walk suggests, each of us is on a journey called life. Just like the journey from creation to new creation, we are on a journey. I was thinking about this. People don't go on a safari in Africa to write a book report about it. Right. Well, I just have to do this for class. Let me go, you know, out to the Serengeti or out to Masai Mara. No, you go to experience the coolness of an African morning when when the dew is on the savanna and the smells are rich. You go to hear the, the tropical birds or the guttural grunts of a hippo. And actually, and it seems morbid, you go to see a pride of lions kill something. And it's amazing. And when people come back from their first safari, we've had the privilege of taking teams on safari that evening around dinner, if I'm going to say, hey, tell us, tell us about your day, they don't go, well, we went out and we saw a few zebra, then some gazelle and the wildebeest were awesome. And the crocodiles attacking the wildebeest during the migration across the river was sort of neat. And then we, they don't do that. I mean, when you're, when you're in an open van and you go past the first lion, I mean, it's Amazing. You know, we're invited to that kind of experience with God. I have learned to despise preaching that sounds like a book report. There's no earnestness. There's no need. There's no passion. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is about experiencing God the Father and the Lamb. Matter of fact, in Philippians 3, chapter 9, the Apostle Paul said this. He wants to be, quote, found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Listen, if your experience of God is only your law keeping, that's not a saving religion. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, faith in a person, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, listen to his prayer that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may, may attain the resurrection from the dead. That word know is not about book knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge of God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of moving from creation to new creation in this series. Now, it's going to be very obvious where we need to start when we talk about moving from creation to creation. It has to include the important figures of this journey. The first one that we confront is Adam. He's not the central figure. We're going to get to the central figure in a little bit. But he is a key figure in the sense that the, the, the central figure of Jesus Christ is called later on in the book of Romans, the last Adam. So we need to understand something about the first Adam to understand what, who the last Adam is. I've had you turn to Genesis. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. 
because the central figure is presented in both the first and last book of your Bible, Genesis and Revelation, as a wounded victor or as a champion who gave himself to win. Look at Genesis 3.15. Interesting because we're parachuting right down into this verse that has a context. But God, the Father, the Creator, is now talking to one of His creative beings. In this text, the serpent. He says this, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve. And between your offspring and her offspring. He, this particular descendant from Eve, shall bruise your head. That's a soft word for, for um, crushing or breaking. And you, to the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So, so as the victor is winning and ultimately claims the victory, he will be injured in doing so. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, the dragon of Revelation 12, that the woman's offspring will strike a death blow to the serpent dragon's head. In three places in Revelation, we are provided a picture of this wounded victor. Let me just read those. Revelation 5.6, the Apostle John says, quote, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And Revelation 13.8, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Do you know what civilizations have taught throughout the centuries is true? In all their fables and legends and myths? What they actually taught holds a kernel of truth. They taught that a type of evil dragon and dark kingdom do exist. Genesis 3, Revelation 12, 13, 16, and 20 support that. Revelation 12, 9 says this, And that great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 20, John says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And the angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit. Where all snakes should be, right? They said if a person had any idea how many snakes were in one square kilometer of Africa, they'd never visit There's a reason we view snakes that way, whether it's a black neck spitting cobra or a gaboon viper or for some of you, the, the fragile, docile little garden snake. Do you know what civilizations also celebrated in their stories is true? A divine champion. Whether it's Greek mythology or Babylonian stories. They knew something about the dark, moral evil of this world and that somehow there had to be a divine champion. Do you know this is the story that moves from Genesis to Revelation? 
And there's something in our hearts that identifies with this. It resonates with this. And cultures around the world tell this story. As a matter of fact, our culture continues to tell that story in its own way. For example, four children led by Peter Pevensey square off against Jadis the White Witch. It all seems hopeless until we realize Aslan the Lion, a wounded victor, is on their side. And many of you have read Chronicles of Narnia. Or the future of civilizations rests in the fate of a young hobbit named Frodo Baggins to destroy the one ring in the fires of Mount Doom in Mordor. But he must do so against relentless attacks, not just by the orcs, but by the powerful dark Lord Sauron. It's a long journey of life and death and all seems hopeless. But as the Lord of the Rings portrays it, there is ultimately victory in the end. Or Luke Skywalker and the Force must confront Darth Vader and the Emperor. Star Wars. That was, the, I think, the first movie I saw in a theater in 1977. And for, for you Star Wars junkies, it was the first film. Even though now retroactively it's called the fourth film, right? A New Hope. Where a young boy wizard finds himself battling the dark, powerful Lord Voldemort. Again, we are faced with the all-seems-lost moment and it's children against grown-ups. But light triumphs over darkness in Harry Potter. Do you understand that the world is telling this same story a thousand different ways in a thousand different languages? Because there's something about it that resonates in our hearts, the truth of it. So as we move from creation to new creation. We're separating myth and fable and story and Hollywood from the truth, even though it contains kernels of truth because it's what resonates in the human heart because there is something within us that images God and longs for this truth. So what do we know about Adam? Adam is an important figure, even though not much is really said about him. Adam was the first human he was the first man. You could say he had the first surgery and that God took a rib from Adam to make woman. And you've got silly Christians thinking that to this day man has one less rib than a woman. By the way, that's false. He was the first husband, the first father, the first farmer, the first taxonomist. Right? He classified organisms into categories. The first linguist. The first perfect man. By the way, there's only a second perfect man. Do you know who that is? That's why there's four Gospels telling you about his life story. The first sinful man. There must be a last Adam who is pure and without sin so that we can become like him in his image. Evolution, also referred to naturalism, prevents people from understanding the theological importance of the first Adam. Matter of fact, Richard Dawkins calls it the Genesis account the Adam myth, or just another origins story in line with the Babylonian origin myths or some of the other aboriginal myths. Here's what's happening. If you r remove the first Adam, 
If you can do away with creation, by the way, I challenge you, I encourage you to do a study on how often even the New Testament letters refer to God's act of creation. If you can remove the first Adam, you have effectively removed the need for the last Adam. Note that Scripture does not refer to Jesus as the second Adam. I do believe we have pictures of a second Adam in Noah, in Abraham. But there is no need for another Adam after Jesus Christ. There's no need for another perfect man or Savior or Redeemer after Jesus Christ. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, Adam. And then the spiritual, Jesus. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, Adam. The second man is from heaven, that's Jesus. As was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Genesis 1-3 to is not an account or about the science of creation. It is a theological account of God creating the world. There is no real process explained. There's no real scientific process other than God spoke and it was so. And God spoke and it was so. There's nothing to really test that. It's a theological focus on two humans and the problem that every succeeding human being faces. Genesis 3 presents the need through a promise that is the answer for every human's problem. Right there at the very beginning of 66 books, in the third chapter, you are presented with the hope of a promise. Matter of fact, it answers best a worldview that seeks these four questions. Where do I come from? Right? That's the question of origins. Who am I? That's the question of significance. Why is the world such a mess? Have you noticed that, by the way? That the world is still a mess in 2022? And we're not even fully nine days into it? That's the question of evil. And is there a future? That's the question of purpose. God's plan is a restorative plan. We're not going to do a whole sermon in Genesis, but Genesis divides into two parts. Chapters 1 to 11 and then chapters 12 to 50. In chapters 1 to 11, it's really simple to remember. It's creation, fall, flood, tower. And then as it shifts and the hinge verse between Genesis two parts that sort of swings like a door moves into a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you have the life story of Joseph. All that matters as it sets you on a trajectory towards revelation. But it's not simply a trajectory towards a book. It's the unfolding and the unveiling of a promise about a specific descendant within human history. 
In the first part, God takes the disorder, the chaos and the darkness, and he brings order, beauty, light, goodness and life. He creates humans. Joe read that for us this morning. What comes as a surprise to many is that God made available to Adam and Eve from the very beginning the gift of eternal life. Remember, they were created. They weren't eternal souls waiting for their bodies. They were created and given life. The promise of eternal life was offered to them through a tree called the tree of life. It stood, Scripture says, in the middle of the garden. Genesis 2.9, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. See, that phrase we remember Eve saying when she looks at the one tree that was off limits. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. Do you know that every single tree God created was like that? It was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting. It seems as though they took of the fruit of the tree of life. They had a choice every time as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also stood there in the midst of the garden. Eve took fruit from the one tree that God placed off limits. So in Genesis 3.22, listen to what God says. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Just pause there. Don't disengage your minds. They had just chosen rebellion and sin that launched them into shame and the quick downward spiral of murder, the first son ever born, Cain. Can you imagine living forever in that condition? Just let's let's talk about the year 2021. Do you want to live 2021 forever? Forever and ever. Do you want to live the first eight full days of the year 2022 forever? Do you know it is God's mercy that he put the tree of life off limits in that condition? Can you imagine living forever right now with the anger in your heart or the depression in your heart or the vexing temptation in your heart or with the disappointment and the hurt or the shame? So it was his grace that Genesis 3:24. listen to this. God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Why? It is his grace to not let man live in his sin forever. But does that mean that the offer of eternal life is never an option again? The tree, the actual tree of life is not mentioned again until guess what book? As we move from creation to new creation, guess where it's mentioned? The book of Revelation. Revelation 2.7 says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 22.2, the last chapter of your Bible says this. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Listen to the description of it. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit, 
each month. So there will be a sense of marking time in eternity. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Can you imagine a tree that bears 12 different kinds of fruit? Wouldn't you love to have a tree like that? Like, oh, it's January, we get mangoes. Oh, I can't wait for February, we get oranges. Oh, and then there's bananas. And then, you know, I love April because that's the coffee bean, right? Is that a fruit? I don't know that that's a fruit. Anyway, we don't know what to expect, but all of a sudden you're given more information that wasn't provided in Genesis because God is letting you know this new creation is going to be beyond your imagination. Revelation 22:14. blessed are those who wash their robes. So there has to be a type of cleansing so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Revelation 22:19. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Let's go back to the original garden. Adam and Eve had a choice in how they would build God's new world. That choice was represented by the tree of life and by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And whatever they chose, it would be the choice between life or the choice between death. Up to this point, it was God who determined what was right and what was good. And now God gave to humanity the dignity and freedom to choose. Will they trust God? Or will they seize their autonomy and set a new standard for what is right and what is wrong? It was an incredible place that God placed Adam and Eve in. To flourish under God's rule forever or choose death by turning away from the giver of life. Of course, the story develops. We're aware of this. A snake enters the garden and starts talking. It doesn't seem strange to them. Again, we're not exactly sure what the environment in the garden was like, but he simply appears as a beautiful creature that God had made. But this creature, though he's beautiful and cunning, is in rebellion to its creator. Always remember this. Satan is a created being. This is where the myths and the legends in Hollywood get it wrong. It's not a 50-50% struggle between light and darkness. God is the only creator and Satan is a created being. But this creature in rebellion to God also wants to lead the pinnacle of God's creation, humanity, into rebellion. We're familiar with his lies. He's causing them to doubt God's goodness, his character. He offers them true life, even though they already had true life. He offers them to be like gods, even though they were already in the image of God. Do you hear the lies? The hissing. The deceptiveness. Very sad. Genesis 3, 6. She ate. He ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew something they didn't know. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. First thing we notice is how it corrupted human relationships. And the second thing we notice is how it corrupted humanity's relationship with their Creator. They hide, they're afraid, they blame shift, they excuse, they're in fear, they're in shame, they live with insecurity. Sound familiar? Sound like anybody else's story? The narrative actually stops where it's just telling you the story and it picks up with God talking to the serpent first. He gives to the serpent and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their sin. 
And even though the snake had an apparent victory, it is now destined for defeat and destruction. God promises to the serpent, a descendant from Eve will conquer you. Yes, you'll strike a blow on his heel, but it won't be fatal forever. But he will in turn crush your head and it will be fatal forever. It's a beautiful picture. As you move through Genesis, you're going to see the widening ripple effect of sin. Chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. Murder. By the way, sin doesn't need a lot of time to get horrific. Adam and Eve choose to sin in Genesis 3 and their first child in Genesis 4 kills his brother. In chapter 4, Cain builds a city where violence and oppression reign. As a matter of fact, another character comes onto the scene. His name is Lamech. He accumulates wives like property and he boasts through a song. If you're interested in reading his song, it's Genesis 4, 23 to 34. And he sings that he is more violent and vengeful than Cain. In chapter 6, there's an odd story about the sons of God, perhaps evil angelic beings or ancient kings claiming to have descended from God. The point is not really who the identity of these two of, of these creatures is. The point is that when fallen humans build kingdoms, they look nothing like the gardens God created. You, you want a picture of that? Look at the kingdoms that you live with right now. Look at America. Look at the value system of America. Look at China. Look at the country that Mike told us about this morning that we're not naming, nor are we naming the organization. And they are selling as merchandise little girls. And they are separating little boys from their families for slave labor. You want to see what humans build? All you have to do is read the book of Genesis. There was one characteristic feature that happened before the flood. Because left to ourselves, left to our own autonomy, humanity is ruining the world and each other. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6.11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with What's the specific sin mentioned? Violence. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. We're entertained by violence through, through movies, but we don't like it when it hurts our own family. We don't like it when it affects our culture's values. In chapter 6 to 9, God symbolically and literally washes the world of its violence through a universal flood. God protects and rescues one family. God repeats the divine blessings. Go, multiply. In Genesis 9.20, it says Noah began to be a man of the soil. Interestingly, here's another Adam, a second chance. The world has been washed. Let's start over. It's very interesting because here's what we're supposed to learn. It wasn't just Adam, because Noah can't do it either. Noah fails. 
also in a garden-type new environment. He presents a new Adam, but now he too has an orchard and he gets drunk and he's naked. And one of his sons, like Cain, Ham, exposes his father's nakedness shamefully. And the downward spiral begins again. And here's what we realize. Water cannot wash away sin. Listen to what Peter says in his last letter. This is the aged, mature Peter. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where where is this Jesus? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers actually use creation as a reason for their disbelief. For they deliberately overlook this fact, Peter says, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Genesis 1. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Genesis 6 through 9. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Jesus teaching. Peter's embracing the entire scriptures. Now he gives the application. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. You know why the scoffers are scoffing? Because God's patient. And he says this, but he is patient toward you. But people throughout history have misunderstood God's character and his ways, and they accuse him for it. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But here's the warning. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Look back at Genesis 3.15, because I want to point you, I want to bring this, draw this down to a conclusion so that we have hope. Look at Genesis 3.15 again. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Eve's descendant will do something. Matter of fact, 1 John 3.8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Anyone familiar with the Gospels understands there are two genealogies within the four Gospels. Matthew records one. He presents a human king. He traces Jesus back to Abraham for racial pedigree and David for royal pedigree. Luke does something different. As a matter of fact, Luke doesn't just go to Abraham and David, listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 3, 23 to 38. Very condensed version. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Enos, the son of Seth. Listen to these last two, because he's drawing it down by age. The son of Adam, but he doesn't stop there. The son of God. What Luke is doing, and we'll get into this more later in the series, Luke is presenting to you the second perfect man. An Adam who will be victorious, not in a perfect garden setting, but in the wilderness. 
And yes, in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. In Romans chapter 5, let me have you turn there. Romans 5, this will be where we draw this to a close. We see that the first Adam needed a last Adam. Romans chapter 5 is about rejoicing in life and hope. As a matter of fact, it talks extensively about Adam's sin and the condition we've inherited, but that's not the focus. The focus is on life and on hope. Look at, look at Romans 5 verse 12. Because here Paul is contrasting the two Adams. Just as sin, Romans 5.12, came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. By the way, we're sinners because of Adam's nature passed on, and we're sinners because we've sinned. Look at verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, here's the contrast. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Look at verse 20. But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through, here he is, the key figure of all history, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22, but in fact Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. New life, eternal life. Do you have that? Those who are in Christ need not fear the condemnation of the curse of Genesis 3 because Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And I love the picture of Revelation 19 when you're talking about a dragon and an ancient serpent. It says this, he sees a figure and he says the name by which he is called. There's this warrior on a white horse. The name by which he is called is the word of God. It's a stark contrast from a baby in the manger or a weak, tortured man on a cross. And Revelation 19.6 says that one on the white horse who is called the Word of God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And here is our hope, Revelation 12.9-11. That great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have Come. From creation to new creation, something better than Eden awaits. Therefore, Second Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I cannot wait for that. In a world of unrighteousness, with a heart of unrighteousness, 
I cannot wait for a place that I've never seen in a time that has not yet come to enjoy something we have never experienced because we are living in a fallen world under the curse of sin. And it's all through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite our worship team to come this morning and remind us as they get into place that God sent His Son not to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. We're going to sing, Death was arrested. We have a victor who was wounded. Matter of fact, he suffered a death blow temporarily. He genuinely died and rose again and conquered death, sin, death, and the devil. And he lives forever and he invites you to trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sin. We're going to sing, Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Do you know the new life that Jesus Christ offers to you as a gift of grace? If not, this morning, would you not call out to Him? Trust Him? Ask Him for the forgiveness of your sin. It's a gift of His grace to you. Let's pray.